Remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason, and plot. But what is this diabolical treason that is never to be forgotten? We're remembering this week on Footnoting History. Guy Fox has become a bit of a darling with groups that value human rights, individual rights, over those of corporations and those in power. But do they have the right guy? Hi, I'm Kirsty, and welcome to Footnoting History. Guy Fawkes was born in April 1570 in York, in Britain, obviously. His grandparents were recusant Catholics. Now, at that point, being Catholic was a crime. Uh, The country was Protestant, and Catholics were viewed with a very skeptical, very discriminatory glance. His father died when he was eight years old, and his stepfather was also Catholic. Now, to be Catholic at that point in time involved a certain amount of dedication to one's faith that you might not expect today. Um, By the time he was 21, he became a mercenary. He was fighting for Spain in the Netherlands, who was fighting for a Catholic country in a Protestant country that was fighting for its independence during the Eighty Years' War. And in 1603, he actually approached Philip III of Spain, who turned him away when he asked for help fomenting a Catholic uprising in England to remove the Protestant monarchs. Um, As far as we can tell, he was loyal, charismatic, bright. He was large and athletic. Um, He could debate as well as fight very effectively. So by all accounts, he was a very effective, very good soldier. And this made him the perfect target for the gunpowder plot, which was led by Robert Catesby in 1604 and 1605. He was approached by Thomas Winter when he was working in Flanders to, uh, to join the plot, and he agreed. The plan was to blow up the House of Lords during the state opening of Parliament on the 5th of November in 1605. Now, this was a plot that the Jesuits were actually heavily involved in, and uh, this led to a lot of mistrust of the Jesuits following this. But um, basically what they did is they rented a cellar directly under the king's position during the ceremony, and they planned to kill as many of the nobles and the royals as possible. They intended to take the young Princess Elizabeth into custody and thus uh, somehow influence the government following the great uh, treason. The official count was 13 men in total. Robert Catesby, the ringleader, Thomas Percy, who was a pensioner and had a house nearby uh, the Houses of Parliament, John and Christopher Wright, Thomas and Robert Winter, Thomas Bates, Ambrose Rookwood, Sir Everard Digby, Robert Keyes, John Grant, and Francis Tresham. Tresham may have been the person to unravel everything by sending a letter to his brother-in-law, William Parker, Lord Monteagle. He did that on the 26th of October, 1605, though there is some evidence that William Parker may have written it himself. The letter is preserved in the National Archives, and it reads... My lord, out of the love I bear to some of your friends, I have a care of your preservation. Therefore, I would advise you as you tender your life to devise some excuse to shift your attendance at this parliament, for God and man have concurred to punish the wickedness of this time, and think not slightly of this advertisement, but retire yourself into your country, 
where you may expect the event in safety. For though there be no appearance of any stir, yet I say they shall receive a terrible blow this Parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. This council is not to be condemned, because it may do you good, and can do you no harm. For the danger is past as soon as you have burnt the letter, and I hope God will give you the grace to make good use of it, to whose holy protection I commend you. Very threatening words. Monteagle was a known royalist, though. He was loyal to James I, and so, in fact, he took this letter directly to Robert Cecil, the first Earl of Salisbury and James's spymaster. Cecil wasted no time and started laying a trap. Now, Fox's job was to obtain and ignite the gunpowder. He was, in fact, he was the military man of the plot. He had none of the political clout of many of the uh, conspirators. He had no money. So his job was simply the hard part. Get the gunpowder, get it into the cellar, and light it. He was discovered and he was arrested at midnight on November 4th, 1605. And he, he had 36 barrels of gunpowder packed into this cellar which would have created a huge explosion had it gone off. There would have been so much collateral damage. He was tortured under the direct permission of the king. He had to have that permission because torture was not legal in uh, Britain. And to his credit, he lasted for two days of torture before he cracked and gave the names of other conspirators. He was sentenced to be hung, drawn, and quartered on the 31st of January, 1606, but instead of facing that, he just leapt off of the gallows and broke his own neck uh, when he had the noose around his neck to avoid the horrors of the long, drawn-out process. Um, He was to be hung, but not until he was dead, just to the point of severe discomfort, and then disemboweled while still alive. So he took the probably sensible route of uh, a quick death instead. The other conspirators were killed in a fight. They escaped and, uh, when they were discovered, died in the uh, attempted capture. They did not want to face the trials and the same fate that Guy Fawkes did. So what does this all mean? The conspirators banded together because of religious conviction. They were all Catholic and desired a Catholic country. Many of them had suffered greatly. They'd been penalized and fined several times over the course of Elizabeth's reign for their refusal to uh, turn over priests and to join the Protestant movement. James did seem to be intent on making amends, but... His parliament was still Protestant, and he yielded to many of the Protestant motivations and politics um, coming from the nobles and from the House of Commons. But does that mean that the conspirators represented all Catholics in Britain at the time? Obviously not. This This was a fringe movement, and these were extremists that had problems getting support even from their own co-religionists. The Jesuits attempted to drum up support for them and were often turned away. Families recognized the danger in supporting not only the Jesuits, but also the threat of violence. They knew, and they were right, that the entire religion, all Catholics in the country, would suffer if this plot went through. That's one of the main reasons that... uh, 
Monteagle may have written that letter himself. He was Catholic and he was trying to distance himself from any threat of treason. Anti-papal sentiment was pretty common in Britain anyway, and this just added fuel to the fire and allowed legal discrimination to continue for a very long time. Catholics were mistrusted. Um, They obtained the local vote only in 1797, and then they could only vote in parliamentary elections in 1829. So this cast a very long shadow over British politics. And James I was not about to let the idea drop. He encouraged, he ordered festivities to commemorate the event every year on the 5th of November, hence Guy Fawkes Day. And um, on that day, they burn a guy in effigy. Now, this was often accompanied with anti-papal slogans up until well into the modern period. But it's very important to note that Catholics in general did not support this plot. There was too much, it was too messy. There were too many other deaths involved, too many other uh, damages, and no concept of how to move the country forward once this great tragedy had happened. Of course, there was going to be a huge backlash, whether or not they succeeded. And their apparent end game to raise the Princess Elizabeth to be a good Catholic queen doesn't seem to fit very well with um, their lack of upper-level support. This was exactly how James I became a Protestant king. His mother, Mary Queen of Scots, was Catholic, but she was forced to abdicate by her earls in favor of her 13-month-old son, James. But this was done by earls, and they appointed his guardians and his tutors to raise him in the Protestant fashion of most of uh, most of Scotland at that point. I'm honestly not sure how the co-conspirators of the gunpowder plot intended to exercise that level of influence over the country. Although they would have wiped out large swaths of the upper classes, these upper class lords had heirs. The country would have maintained its overall structure, even if that would have started a civil war, really, to determine control from that point. In addition, it's not like they actually intended to set up a democracy or some other form of government anyway. Their entire goal was to set up a Catholic monarchy. So they intended to retain the overall class structure and the overall system of governance of the country. They just wanted to change who was in charge. What we're looking at, essentially, is a group of religious extremists who intended to destroy a large portion of the government through an act of terrorism without the ability to actually follow through on their plans, even if they did succeed. And Guy Fawkes, the emblematic image of the gunpowder plot, was in fact probably the lowliest peon of the bunch. He had the wits and knowledge and experience to be able to pull it off, but he didn't have any of the political aspirations, nor could he have any of the political aspirations of any of the blooded conspirators. All of this together made him a very interesting and artistically sound, but historically interesting choice for the face of the hero for V for Vendetta. It's hard to make Guy Fawkes into a hero. But they did it. And beyond that, for his face to end up as not only the 
image of the anti-hero in V for Vendetta, but also the face of the average person, both for groups like Anonymous today or the Occupy movement, it shows you just how fickle historical memory can be and how the image and identity of an individual can change, not only over the course of their lifetime, but also through the ensuing centuries. So as we gear up to remember, remember the 5th of November with our British cousins, let's take a moment to think about exactly how much that image has changed over the years and exactly what it is we're celebrating and who we're burning and why. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!